you can't learn to swim by by reading a book about swimming. You got to jump in the pool and swim. Welcome to the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Each interview, we talk to leaders who differentiate themselves and achieve high levels of performance through the lens of motivation, competitiveness, and mindset. These conversations lead to thought-provoking idea sharing and growth, accompanied by entertaining storytelling. Welcome along on our journey to lifelong learning, improved performance, and a look inside the competitive mindset. Billy Keckler Basketball is scheduling for summer camps. If your youth program or high school teams are looking for out-of-season skill and team development, BKB will come to your community and instruct skills and concepts that fit into your program's mission. For more information and inquiries, email billykeglerbasketball at gmail.com. BKB is a unique player experience. The Greatest Games Podcast interviews coaches of all levels about the greatest games they have ever been a part of. Chris and Brian post two episodes per week that explore these great games and also takes a dive into each coach's journey and some lessons that they have learned along the way. Catch the Greatest Games Podcast on all podcast platforms as well as thegreatestgames.podbean.com. Today we welcome to the Competitive Mindset Podcast, B.J. Leroy. Hello, Billy. Well, B.J., let's start right away and tell me about your journey through life and how it's led to where you are right now. Small town Wisconsin, kid, going through <laughs> going through grade school at a pretty young age, we had, uh, I just had one rule, maybe two, I had to stay inside the city limits and I had to be home when the streetlights came on we had uh pretty much run of the city and it wasn't uh it wasn't uncommon to leave house in the morning you know at eight o'clock or seven thirty or something like that with a bag full of uh, sporting goods and not show up again until supper or later you just ran out and played and and all the traditional sports and sports we made up and not well i wasn't a great athlete by any means but we just played everything and loved it. So that, that was a lot of fun. Really, the first time I got serious, my, my sports volleyball, so the, where I really got hooked into a sport was right after high school, which is pretty common for boys in Wisconsin. My girlfriend asked me to play on a co-ed uh, team in the sand outside. I'm like, oh yeah, I, you know, I'll try volleyball. I haven't played it uh, in the past and immediately fell in love with the game and had a couple of good friends. We were traveling around, going to professional beach matches, and and then um, the same girl asked me to be her assistant coach on a on a team that she was coaching. I had never coached really, so I said sure. And then they had too many kids, so all of a sudden I went from not coaching at all to running a team. I think I was 19, coaching 16-year-olds. That was a pretty interesting way to get started. A couple of years after that, the the club that we were coaching out of was looking for a new director. Ripe old age of 22, I was a club director. At that time, there were seven clubs in Wisconsin. Now there are, I think, 140. But at the time, there were very few of us, and, and I sort of fell into a group of people that were building for the first time a USA Volleyball region that covers all of Wisconsin. So I, I was in, involved in that very early on. So I, I got I got pretty hooked. A couple years later, started coaching varsity volleyball, which I did for 15 years. And again, I followed the, the same lady 
kind of dragged me along. I was kind of following her around, and uh, she's now been <clears throat> retired from coaching for 22 years, and I hassle her all the time because she's obviously now my wife. That uh, you know, you're the one that got me into this. So you, <laughs> if I'm wasting a lot of time, it's you know, it, just remember who who got me started. But that's kind of how I got to to where I am now. So what is your current role with volleyball then? Yeah, several. I'm still on the board of directors for USA Volleyball's uh, region, Wisconsin, the Badger region. I was the uh, the education chair there uh, until just recently. I've been teaching for USA Volleyball uh, since you know, the mid-1990s, a couple of courses a year, um, you know, helping beginning coaches get started. Then uh, I I was coaching club up until this last year, and now I've I've started an assistant coaching job with uh, the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, which I know you're a little bit familiar with. I am, and we've had a few guests on, which uh, people who are listening should be familiar with. So there could be some trends here, but also some fun topics. So I want to circle back a little bit to your childhood, and you mentioned sports we made up. Can you tell me some of the things that you engaged in with play as a child that you really enjoyed? Yeah, I I just, uh, I was a baseball fan and later a basketball fan, but we would do just about anything to play home run derby. We hit, obviously, you know, hit baseballs in in a conventional way. We'd go up to the tennis courts with a couple of tennis rackets. My hometown, Sheboygan Falls, was was a, a big tennis uh, city right next to Kohler and a lot of tennis players. A bunch of my high school friends are tennis pros. We'd go to the tennis courts with tennis rackets and play home run derby with tennis balls, see if we could hit, you know, how far away we could hit a tennis ball out of the, out of the tennis courts or hit golf balls with baseball bats. Or on a ski trip one time, we were playing baseball in the in the room with a tube of toothpaste and a cough drop. <laughs> and, of course, the tube of toothpaste splattered open all over the place, and we got in a little bit of trouble for that. But it was just it was competitive. It was a bunch of boys being boys and, and screwing around and just making up games and anything to, anything to have that competition. We just really enjoyed it and didn't end up in too many fist fights, but, but more laughing and having a good time. Well, that's what play and sport is meant to be about. So you mentioned that you were a club director at 22. Can you tell me about your mindset going into, I assume, was a role where your peers at other clubs were much older and much more experienced than you, and kind of what your mindset was taking that approach? Well, looking back on it, I wasn't very good at it, for sure. But I was, in the moment, if I can put my my mindset back on to that time in the moment we're just working hard to find enough coaches for the players that we had and get a get a gym rented and get uniforms purchased and get everybody the tournaments and it just wasn't as big of a deal then as it is now so there were a lot of kids that would kind of sometimes show up and not and I mean it was a couple hundred bucks to play the whole season I was I was overwhelmed with just that portion of it you know, keeping the club running and going and dealing with parents. The parents were a lot older um, than I was. I mean, heck, some of the 
some of the parents were older than my own parents. That part of it uh, was a great, really, learning experience for me because I learned pretty quickly that, uh, you know, sometimes you have to just take what it is that they're giving you. You, you can't, you know, <laughs> you have to be respectful of them. If, if there's somebody that has a different opinion or, or um, really wants to tell you you're doing a poor job, that at, at that point in my life, they might have been right. And then probably a greater learning experience for me was the board of people that, that helped put together our region for the first time. I mean, our region now is 14,000 members. At that time, we might have had about 400. And But but some of the people that were involved were really uh, accomplished volleyball folks. One of the, the kind of the ringleader had refereed in three Olympics and uh, some of the some of the guys involved had been training kids that were going off and getting scholarships and you know that just that was way above where I was so there again I learned pretty quickly I just I had to do a lot of listening and not so much talking and and I I rode their coattails for a long time until I could kind of get up to speed so you walked me right into my next question with starting the Badger region which is a huge part of the success of volleyball in Wisconsin and kind of making the system more uniform so that it's easier to access and understand for people. Can you tell me about the early days of starting that region and what the vision was? Yeah, honestly, our vision was just to have some control over our, you know, what we wanted to do. We were we were part of another region, and while those are they were good people, we just weren't doing it in in the kind of the Wisconsin way. You know, it was a little bit more it was a little bit more rigid. It wasn't as flexible in Wisconsin. We all sort of knew each other, and it was like that for for several years, where where you sort of knew every coach and knew every club director and all the referees. And I still know a lot of them, but it's hard to know everyone. Um, but you know, at that time it was, it it really was just that for me, we had really no idea where it was, where it was headed, uh, to, you know, to the point where, you know, at that time we were all volunteers, every one of us. And, uh, we eased into having a kind of a part-time person that we were vastly underpaying. Now we have five full-time people making, um, you know, a reasonable uh, living wage and 401ks and all that kind of stuff. So if you had told me then that's where it was going, I would have never believed you. Um, it was it was really just to it was really just to be a little bit more of ourselves to have our own have our own way of doing things. You mentioned teaching for USA Volleyball. Can you tell me about how you got involved with USA Volleyball from a teaching perspective? Again, I, there's so many of these things I just sort of fell into. I was running this club in Sheboygan, and it, 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 there's a mandatory portion of the training that you have to take as a new coach. I think every sport is like this. I know soccer is for sure because I've taken their introductory course as well. We were a little bit separated from some of the other clubs, and I just didn't want to have to take our coaches to Milwaukee or to Madison or wherever else to, to get them trained. So the first chance I got, I, I took the, the first two courses of 
uh, USA Volleyball's training, and then very shortly thereafter took the took the coursework so that I could actually teach. I think the first time I did it, I worked with the author of the the manual, and I just fell in love with the the material. I'm certain to this day it's my favorite thing to do is to get in a room with 15, 20 coaches and and ask a bunch of questions and lead them through some of these exercises. The the real gold nuggets are what we call aha moments where you see somebody's eyes light up and they go, oh, wow, you know, I've been doing that wrong forever. I need to do it this way instead. That is the, is the best part of it. So I was kind of being lazy in the beginning. It was the only real reason I wanted to be able to teach this class and, and, and found out right away I, you know, I wanted to do it for a long time. I just, I really enjoyed it. That was, that was 25, 27 years ago. Yeah. So you just mentioned the aha moment, their eyes light up with the wrong way. Can you give me an example of something that is the wrong way of doing something? Because I'm curious if what they knew to be was just maybe a different way of attacking it or if there has been a change in the way things have been taught as to how it becomes a wrong way to do things rather than an alternate way to do things. Sure, and I'll, I'll, I'll back out just a little bit. We do our best not to say, not to tell people that what you're doing is wrong. My big lesson or, or idea in that realm is efficiency. We want to be as efficient as possible, especially today where we have only so much time in the gym, especially volleyball. You know, we're, we're borrowing gyms during basketball season and sitting in on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings trying to avoid all the practices. So we get in the gym, run on the court, and you got two hours, and we want to be as good as possible uh, at, at every moment. And there are... There's so many things that teams do that are, they don't mean to be doing something that's inefficient, but they're just not necessary. And I'll give you one example, maybe two. We used to go in the gym and spend 10 minutes stretching. There's next to no evidence that stretching before you play avoids injury. And there's there's actually some evidence that it will lower your ability or or lower your um, explosiveness in in whether it's jumping or swinging your arm or whatever. So rather than spending that 10 minutes of stretching, let's get in the let's get in the gym, get a volleyball and a partner, and get the ball flying over the net. You know, in low impact ways, we're not going to max jump right away, but Let's get sweaty with the volleyball in our hands so that we're maximizing that time. And then, you know, just in some of the some of the drill design, uh, another one, and I, I try not to get too volley, volley geeky here, but there's a lot of stuff where a lot, of, a lot of drills are run with the coach in the middle of them and where the coach is tossing a ball or, you know, they're tossing it underhand or throwing it at a player and, that that is so nonspecific and it, it never happens in a game, you know. <laughs> as a as a coach, I know you've never run out onto the court during a, a game and made passes. You I've know, wanted to, your, to a few times, that's for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. But you know, your your post guys are not taking your passes during the game. They're taking passes from the guard. In volleyball, you see you'd see a lot of coaches would be setting, especially at younger levels. They're setting during warmups, and their warmups look really good. And then the game starts, and this young setter who's terrible can't set the same way the adult setter could, and the hitters they're not accustomed to the poor setting. So, you know, it's it's adjusting some of that mindset for people to help them get to a point where, yeah, things aren't going to be perfect, but we have to learn to deal with the imperfection. The, the players have to learn to deal with that and, and kind of widen their range so that they're able to deal with that kind of stuff. And that's that's where a majority of it happens. That's a really good example. And another added benefit there is the ability to add repetition for the players, especially the young players, with the setting example that you just gave. So let's stick with some of the coaching stuff a little bit. Can you talk to me about the constraint-led approach to teaching or coaching? That can get pretty geeky um, real fast, but there are a couple of examples. I'll give you two definitions first. So a constraint, an easy definition for constraint is just a rule whether it's a physical rule, something about the player, their height, their jumping ability, the, the rules of the game, you know, you have to play this way or that way. So it's, it's really just a rule that has to be followed. And then there's this other thing which is a little bit more confusing called an affordance. And an affordance is really just uh, a good way of saying that is it's, it's an invitation. Like it, in a basketball example, if you see a player, you know, a guard will be at the top of the key and they're dribbling, and all of a sudden they just take off right down the middle of the lane. It looks like it's parted like the Red Sea. And they go up, hit this layup, and, and that that opening of the lane is an affordance. So what we're doing in with constraints-led is we're building some constraints. We're building some rules that are going to force these affordances to appear so that players can recognize them and go toward them and, and learn about them. Um, it's very different than the, an older style, which was the coach saying, take three steps this way and then turn 45 degrees this way and then do this action. You know, it, it used to be very verbalized and, what a lot of psychological research and, and motor learning research has, has learned, and it, it, it really has become common sense to me, <laughs> we learn best by doing. And if I want to learn how to, you know, if I want to learn how to play in the front third in soccer, I need to spend some time playing in the front third in soccer. I can't learn that very well by reading it in a book. It's really the difference of, of knowledge of versus knowledge about. And those, th those two things sound similar, but knowledge about is, you know, reading a book or watching video or hearing a coach talk. And all that stuff is great. You can do a little bit of learning. But as players, the most learning happens in this knowledge of, which is you're in this environment and you're having to deal with it. You can't learn to swim by by reading a book about swimming. You got to jump in the pool and swim. 
So another way so, to so explain that, that would be about it. having the experience. Yeah, that's really it. So so then once you, you, you get into that range, what we do in volleyball is we'll do things like tell the players that this area of the court is now out of bounds. You can't hit it there anymore. So that forces them to look for alternate, you know, you take away their favorite shot, basically. Um, in soccer, you might, if the if the goal is huge, you know, the, uh, the typical goal is really big. We used to do this all the time. We'd take one of those little pug goals, which is maybe four feet wide and three feet tall, and set that somewhere inside the, the goal. And that became the only place you could shoot to. So, so that's another form of constraint. So you're just you're working on that specific shot, and uh, we're we're finding I found over the last few years that has really helped us to again kind of calibrate our skill set to widen our range of shots and our uh, widen our range of choices and recognize these you know these invitations in the game. So let's continue down the nerd path with elaborating yeah. with this. Talk to me a little bit about short-sighted or small-sighted games. I know that you mentioned soccer a few times, and with my experience with that, they do a lot of that. Basketball, three-on-three is becoming more and more prominent. So how can that be helpful? And also maybe what are the downfalls of short-sighted or small-sighted games when trying to translate it to actual gameplay? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm a 100% believer in small-sided, even at, even at the levels I've coached at in the, you know, the varsity level and, and even with the college level. I think, I think some small-sided is really good for them. A matter of fact, I know from the men's volleyball program in 2008, they won a gold medal. There were two guys that came in every single day and played against each other in a 10 foot by 10 foot court on each side, one on one. And they just, they loved it. And they got better at, at, you know, by doing that. The big proponents are you get more touches. There are more opportunities for the, you know, for the thing that, that you're really working on. You know, in volleyball, it's taking more, more attacks. In soccer, it's taking more shots. In basketball, three on three, you're getting more passes, more opportunities to set the pick and have some space to work. The potential downfalls, a small sided is really you've just added the constraint of you've changed the court size a little bit. So some, some of like the long passes aren't going to happen. You might not be able to take three pointers if you're playing real small sided in, you know, in three on three or something like that. But, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you another good, uh, kind of example of how, how this works better for you. And it's a warm up example from basketball. What's the number one basketball warm up drill that everybody does? Layup line. Yeah. So you got 12 guys on a basketball team. Right, and you got five guys over or six guys on one line, six guys on the other. One guy dribbles up, hits the shot. Another guy runs and grabs a. I guess you could call it a rebound. It's probably not. You know, it's probably just picking up the ball that came through the hoop. And then they switch lines. So in that setup, you got how many people learning? Really one. 
Well, what I would say is you could change that. And, and in my mind, if I was coaching basketball, I would take a defender. I would put balls on both lines. I would take a defender and put the defender on the player and say uh, the constraint is you cannot steal the ball, but you must make that player change directions at least twice before they go to the hoop. And and so then what I think you'd be working on, you know, the the player with the ball is learning how to make those make that crossover dribble or or you know dribble left and then farther left and then switch into making the shot. The defender is learning how to position themselves on the court. You got two of them going at once. So now you've got four people learning all at once because you got two defenders and two shooters. So I don't see how that could be real negative. I, I see that as a real positive and and I see more and more coaches doing it, not as many, but more and more. And the same thing in soccer. I mean you go on any soccer field, the first thing you see is a bunch of cones laid out on the ground and you see kids dribbling through these cones. What are the kids looking at? Well, they're looking at the cones. But when they get to the game, what does the coach start screaming at a guy who's staring at his feet? Look up. Get your head up. Well, you taught me how to dribble around cones, so I'm used to looking at the ground while I dribble. There's a lot of little things like that that we could go down a pretty big rabbit hole when we start to get into part whole or whole part method teaching here. So I'm going to drive us in a little bit of a different direction to see where it takes us. Can you talk to me about coaching without punishment? I think the most famous example of this is when one of the Harbaugh's was the 49ers coach and the winners would run. So can you talk to me how we can remove punishment from coaching? Number one, my, my favorite example is... I want the gym or the the court or whatever to be a, like a classroom. I want it to be a place where they're learning. And I'm, I'm married to a teacher. I've known a lot of teachers, and I ask teachers all the time, if you were teaching multiplication tables and you said to a kid, what's four times four? If they don't know the answer, what would you do? Like if you were teaching them, Billy, what would you do for a kid that doesn't know four times four? Well, I would walk them through the learning process that we went through when we taught them the scale. Yeah. You're going to give them more attention. It would be ridiculous for a teacher to say four times four, okay, that's 16 push-ups. Let's get it done. Maybe you'll remember from now on. I mean, it just it, it sounds preposterous. I'll give you a little bit of backup from the experts. There are two groups of people. The uh, sometimes I get this one wrong, but you'll you'll understand it. It's the American Academy of Pediatrics, and then there's also a group called Shape, which is the Society for Health and Physical Educators. So that's the pediatricians, the child child children's doctors, and educators. Both of those expert organizations have for 20 years maintained that physical punishment is the absolute wrong way to teach any sort of a skill. And if, if those expert groups are, are willing to say that, who am I as a coach to, to deal through, deal with uh, learning 
through scaring a kid and, and having them be afraid of making a mistake. It, it makes no sense. Um, yet people continue, you know. I, I find that it, it hurts trust. That's one of the biggest things. And, and that's one thing I don't ever want there to be is a lack of trust in our gym. Uh, and that's that's my basic argument. <laughs> for, yeah, for and that's getting. a really good eye-opening way to look at it. When you give the math example, that's a really good way to look at it. And I, I can say that I was guilty of that as a coach. And there's a lot of things since I've got out of coaching that, you know, when I get back into it someday, I know I'm going to do 180 degrees differently because of the clarity I've been able to gain since stepping back from evaluating those kinds of things. With that in mind, can you talk to me about reinventing your coaching self? Yeah, it's happened to me um, really in two, twice in a really big way. And then all the time, I mean, constantly, you know, we have to be learning. So the first time was when I when I jumped into teaching the first time and learned with a guy by the name of John Kessel. He's a pretty famous guy in USA Volleyball. He's in a couple of halls of fame, and he brought some of our coaches here that eventually won Olympic gold medals, and he's just a kind, generous person for everything that he's done. He opened me up you know, early on to some of the stuff we've already talked about, getting out of the punishments and being more game-like and you know, working on trust. And then... Uh, about five years or so ago, I and I, you know, I used a lot of those methods over a long period of time. And about five or six years ago, I think it was 2015, so five years ago, I went out to the Olympic Training Center, spent a, I think it was six days out there, learning from and with some of our top coaches. And I had a major overhaul at that point as well, just changing the way. You know, I, I had done a lot of things that I thought were working, and I went to a much more science-based approach. What are the more learning scientists telling us? What are you know psychologists telling us? Because we really, it's impossible for us to tell what works. <laughs> you know, if I say I could say, well, that punishment worked because the because the players got better. Well, they were also. Um, eating, lifting weights, sleeping, playing other sports, going to school, and what's to say which one of those things worked? Because they're all about as equivalent uh, to playing the game as, you know, as punishments are. So we have very little evidence that the things that we do work unless we go to, the sci- to, a, to a little bit more science-based approach where somebody has taken the time to have a control group and a a test group, and the test group shows a more positive reaction to the, you know, to the skill that was introduced. So maybe that's a better way of telling um, what's going on. And I I get a lot of times, my my favorite part of this is I I have people tell me all the time that you're so close-minded You'll only do this game-like approach. Like, well, I actually think I'm really open-minded because I want you to prove me wrong. I'm pretty set in everything I'm doing because I've done the research and I'm I like the methodology because of this expert or this you know this set of 
publications. So if you can prove me wrong, I will change to whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> but if you can't do that, then I'm going to stick with what I'm doing. And the players, I feel like, would gravitate towards this approach more because they get to play. You know, like we kind of talked about at the beginning with the free play and open play of the kid. I know when I was coaching, they just want to run five. They just want to play. And this leans into that and takes you know, what could be perceived as a negative from, you know, what they always want and what a coach always wanted and leaning into it and combining them to make a positive. Yeah, right on. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest things I think a mistake that coaches make is we talk about all of these, these uh, very, you know, complex systems and ideas, whether it's, you know, we're just talking about constraints and affordances and, psychology and motor learning and all that stuff, we can be real serious in our skill as coaches, but then we have to make, we have to take that stuff and make it fun for our players because there's no point in doing it if it's not fun. Maybe at a professional level or even to some degree the college level where players are you know, playing for a scholarship, I think it has to be fun. Otherwise, what's the point of it? I mean, that's what sporting is supposed to be. So, yeah, I, I agree. I, the players definitely go for the playing, and that's why I think small-sided is so good because they, they really get the opportunity to touch the ball more often. It's funny you put that last part in there because I love small-sided. I love three-on-three three or two-on-two two with constraints, and the players did not like that because it wasn't – running fives. It wasn't running up and down and it took some while for them to find some joy in it, but we were able to find a happy medium with that. But I want to elaborate on this fun part because now it's fun for me because it's my favorite question that I want to ask you. Can you tell me, are you driven by the fear of losing or the joy of winning? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and in my second major coaching overall, one of the guys asked that question too. And I've, I've, so I've thought about it over the last five years a lot, there are situations that you can only get into by playing well. The, the one I go to because I'm a Badger, playing in the field house when the field house is rocking, the band is playing, the cheers are deafening, the, the roof is going to blow off the place. You can only get there if you've done something really well. And maybe... In my life, 15 or 20 times I've been in that conference championship or state or, or national championship match. And you can just re, you can remember the way stuff smells and what people said to you and specific plays so much more than anywhere else. So for me, it's, it's definitely the love of winning. And I, I tend to think of now as a coach, and I, I just found this. I've been cleaning out our basement over the last couple of weeks. While I was off for Christmas, I found an old box of videotape. So that's how long I've been coaching. But I, I was looking <laughs> for a specific. Uh, I found a specific match that I was looking for was in the state tournament. We're playing a tight match, and uh, it goes all five games. It's pretty intense. It's like I think it was twelve twelve, and we scored. Uh, we scored the last three points, and we we score fifteen. We put it down. And everyone jumps up off the bench, of course. And I look out on the, the court, <laughs> and uh, there are two girls that are hugging, jumping up and down, 
and spinning around while they're jumping and crying and laughing all at the same time. And I watched that on video. I'm just sitting there. I can feel a lump coming up in my, my throat, you know. And it's not because we won that match. It's because they're just so happy in that moment. I want every kid to have the chance to be able to have that moment in sports. So, yeah, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't like to lose. <laughs> but uh, it's seeking those it's seeking those moments where you where you win. It's just a blast for me. I would agree that, that those are definitely some great memories, and you remember those way more than you do the fearful, not tying of your stomach moments or, or games that you've maybe had in your career. So I want to get you out of here on the last question. In a hypothetical world, if you could have one superhero power, what would it be, and what would you do with that superhero power? <laughs> I probably should say flying. That's what volleyball players, you know, when a volleyball player jumps really high, we always say, wow, that guy can fly. But I was thinking about this, and there was, when my son was younger, there was a um, a cartoon. I can't remember the name of the cartoon. But this there was a kid in the cartoon that had this great big book of everything. Whenever they couldn't figure something out, they'd go to this book and look in there, and they could figure out, pretty quickly, okay, here's the right pathway to take. Here's what we got to figure out, or here's what we need to know before we can go forward. And what kind of a cool superpower would it be to know, yeah, this is the right pathway forward, to have that knowledge. This is where we got to go. These are the stats we need to take, or this is what we need to work on. <laughs> of course, I'm relating it to coaching right away, but for me, that that would be pretty cool. Well, if you're old enough to remember the the index of cyclopedias or encyclopedias, you know, that a lot of people had in their houses. That's what that was supposed to be, right? The books of everything that gave you all the knowledge to the world. Yeah, we had that. We had a set of encyclopedias. I think uh, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I think those encyclopedias that we had in our house were maybe from the 50s. But uh, we used to flip through those things all the time. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be... You know, there's just so much data now. I mean, we're in a big data world, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone. I love pouring through the stuff. Um, I love taking statistics that matter. How do you know which ones matter? That's that's the hard part is is figuring out what you know what really matters to us. What what's it going to take to win this match or or to get better? So I, I think that'd be a pretty cool one to have. Yeah, you have to find it, and then you also have to fit it because everybody can have all kinds of information, but if you don't fit it to your system or your style, then you're just having tentacles going in too many different directions. That's a cool way of putting it. I like that. Well, that's a great way to end then. So, BJ, thank you for your time, and I look forward to analyzing some of these things as they play out in your season as you guys have a spring season. And then also as I'm watching other practices, because I'm a gym nerd and I just love to be in germs and <laughs> love to be in gyms when there's not germs and uh, yeah. see how these things play out. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, Billy. It's always fun for me to talk about this kind of stuff. So uh, thanks for having me on. It's great. Next time on Competitive Mindset. Football officiating is such a mental challenge. Competitive Mindset Music was produced by DJ Jojo Moore, and all images were created by Elena Keel. Check out the Competitive Mindset website for a full catalog of episodes and interview review articles. You can find the site at competitive-mindset.com or through our social media at CompetitivePod.